Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays at voxoc.com slash live and at the El Dorado Performing Arts Center. Well, good morning. So, hey, no more University of Michigan updates. The wheels have fallen off. So um, I've officially conceded the election to Mike Gary and... um, this is a very sad phone call. Hey, before, uh, before I jump into Q&A, we have some very interesting questions this morning. Uh, a man named Alan Jacobs is a Christian uh, scholar. He's a writer. And he was recently interviewed about politics today and how Americans have lost the ability to talk to each other. I want to read a couple of his quotes from this interview because it really sets up today's uh, Q&A time. So in the article that was called How American Politics Became So Exhausting, he says two things I want to draw your attention to. One, he said, here's a problem with America today is that nobody's merely wrong. He said, Nobody, nobody's just wrong. They always have to be labeled wicked, evil, or malicious. So he wants to retain the category of I think you're wrong, but I don't think you're malicious. I don't think that you're evil. I thought that was insightful. And then he said this, and it immediately made me think of Vox, our church. He said, I'm asking the question, so where is the space where Christians who find uh, things complicated or difficult to talk about, when people are drawing lines, they're saying, I have settled this issue, and I want to be with other people who have settled the issue. I think that can be really, have really bad consequences. That's saying I'm not interested in having the conversation anymore. Sometimes being a grown-up is realizing that there are issues you'd rather not talk about that you're going to have to talk about. So when we say a box is a safe place, I think what we're saying in part is that this is a safe place to have really hard conversations. But we're going to have to answer the question, what do we mean safe? If safe means box is a place in which nobody disagrees with me, then I don't think box is a safe place. We have people here who have vastly different opinions. Uh, The teaching team has different opinions when it comes to social issues. On our leadership team, we have people who uh, very much support President Trump and people who think that our country's taken a a turn. Uh, You have people who would support aspects of the Nashville Statement and people who think the Nashville Statement is a really bad document. So even Mike and I, we have have real disagreements with each other. We used to have breakfast all the time at IHOP and just hash out for hours all these different issues. And we're on the same page, we'd like to say, but we're in different parts of the page when it comes to different kind of issues. So with that being, and I just want to remind you of our three core values as I hold up four. Um, I just realized that I'm really bad at math. Here are three core convictions. The church exists to serve and love the world. Second one, the church should be a safest place to talk about and wrestle through anything. And then lastly, the church must capture the hearts and minds of the next generation. And we are completely committed to those. Now, with that in mind, let's tackle two questions that kind of got at the same issue. Question number one, is it safe to belong even for Trump supporters starting to wonder? 
So one of the issues that we've had to wrestle with is how much do we talk about politics from up front? Now, we get a lot of questions from week to week, and because we're in such an interesting political atmosphere today in the United States, the question becomes, up front, do we tackle political issues or do we set the politics outside? We've made the decision to tackle political questions. That has not always gone over well with some of you in the audience. There are some who believe, no, I want to, I want to get away from politics. I don't want to come in here and have to wrestle with it. So there's going to be divisions. However we handle this, box is going to be like a fitted sheet that you get one corner down and the other side just kind of pops up. My wife's going to be very impressed that I used a fitted sheet analogy. But let me say this. This sure ought to be a safe place for people who support President Trump. Uh, One of my dearest academic mentors, a man who has shaped me more than anyone when it comes to Christian thinking, is an ardent Trump supporter. I have another friend of mine who deeply um, wrestled with but voted for President Trump. And so we're still friends. And I, I, I come from a bit of a different camp when it comes to that. But I so admire these two individuals. Um, one of my friends said to me, listen, we can criticize President Trump all we want for not getting things done. But right out of the gates, he got the most important thing done. A lot of my friends said, I voted for President Trump because of one promise he made, and that was he was going to put someone on the Supreme Court who would protect religious liberty. And men and women, if we don't have religious liberty in this country, we are going to be marginalized and shut down as the church, and Biola University and other universities won't exist anymore. And so when President Trump campaigned that I'm going to protect religious freedom, there were some people who said, okay... Uh, I get that he's not perfect. I get this is complicated. I get that, but I'm, we need to protect religious liberty and other social issues. And so he followed through amazingly quickly on that one issue. So um, even while I struggle with President Trump, this ought to be a safe place to have that kind of a conversation about who do we support and how do we use politics as the church. So I sure hope that we've not communicated to people who uh, support President Trump that this isn't a place for you. Of course, it's a place for you. Second question. President Trump so strongly supports Christian values more than most any other president and was the only president to speak at the Values Voter Summit. If 83% of America identifies themselves as Christians, then why is there such a pushback on President Trump? Clinton would have stomped on our Christian rights. Questioning him as evil is ridiculous. Let me start with what I agree with the question. Remember a couple weeks ago I addressed the, uh, somebody sent in a pretty passionate Um, about DACA and and called President Trump evil. And I really am hesitant to do that. Uh, I don't think we should call him evil. And I'm going to talk about cognitive complexity. I'm actually going to preach about that this morning, is that I think we need to have complex views of people and that very seldom are people just able to be whitewashed with one label as being evil, and I don't think President Trump is evil. I would never put him in that category. Um, Now let's talk about the things I disagree with. President Trump so strongly supports Christian values. I I would question that, and I would say uh, maybe in some ways he's spoken about things, but when does a person's life actually matter, right? And when 83%, and I would say 83% Uh, identify themselves as Christians, boy, that gets us in trouble really quickly because they're cultural Christians. 
of that 83%, which I would agree with, they're cultural Christians. They, they are not people who necessarily know the Lord. They've been brought up in a Christian-ish nation or brought up in Christian families and have adopted the label, but not necessarily adopted Jesus' lifestyle. Um, uh, so so I, I have a hard time with evangelicals so getting behind President Trump. But, but let me say, I agree with I agree that Secretary Clinton, and we need to have a complex view of her, right? She, we cannot whitewash her as evil as well. Um, but um, she made absolutely um, clear that she was going to go after our religious freedom. That Secretary Clinton feels like the conservative church has too much freedom in this country, and that places like Biola University, APU, Wheaton, we're going to be on her list, that we're going we're to take away some of these freedoms. If you don't buy into a certain social agenda, with, um, she made that known, and so heading in, that put us in a really weird spot because um, she had made it clear that she feels like... American churches have too much freedom to believe certain things. So that's a very uh, complicated answer to a very complicated question. Well, welcome to Vox. So, and and let me just say one other thing. Mike and I talked yesterday. Mike was actually speaking at the Ohio State Campus Crusade for Christ retreat. Oh, don't say nice. Who said nice? (laughs) I prayed for him. I prayed for his soul during those two days. Um, so we talked, and so understand that when we answer questions from up front, you have the full freedom to disagree. And when we answer certain questions from up front, we're not necessarily representing the doctrine of Vox when it comes to certain issues. This is very much our opinion, and I think it's good for you to hear our opinion. And there's going to be times that Mike and I disagree with each other and how we would answer certain questions about gun control or about uh, whether to kneel Uh, as Kaepernick has done. So just know that there's great diversity on the teaching team. There's great diversity in leadership at Vox. And I certainly hope that regardless of your political stance, you feel that this is a place where we can have safe, difficult conversations. And in my sermon, I'm going to unpack what I think a difficult, complex conversation actually looks like as we try to have those at Vox. So let me bring out our uh, worship team. Uh, Stella's here with us this Sunday leading. And uh, so Stella, come on out with the worship team. And then uh, after that, I'm going to come out. We'll uh, have a sermon in after two songs. Thank you, Stella. Thank you. Thank you, guys. That's my base right here. This is my base right here. Oh, I just want to just once just have a ponytail. I would have it just long enough to once be on a base and go. And then I would cut it off. I, would, I think it looked pretty dorky. I also would want to say in my communication theory class, you know, Aristotle once said, and then I would, I would cut it off. I, I have been teaching communication theory for over 20 years, thinking about it, writing about it. And uh, people often ask me, okay, if you were to take everything you've learned about communication theory and put it into one 
idea, what would be the one idea you'd want to teach with people? And it's the idea that I think we've lost today as Americans. I really do. I think the internet doesn't do this idea very well. I think American politics has really shifted away. Alan Jacobs, that interview, he was asked the question, are we really more uncivil today? And he had a great answer. No, I don't think we're more uncivil today, but I think via social media, we're more agitated. That via social media, we see this all the time being played out. And he had some great quotes of how people t- spoke about each other, politicians in the past, and religious leaders in the past. Oh, it makes what's happening today look pretty tame. But via social media, I think we're constantly in this agitated state. So what's the one concept I would share with us that I think is throughout the Bible is this idea called cognitive complexity and perspective taking. Do I take your perspective long enough to see the world through your eyes, and do I have a complex view of complex issues? So let me illustrate it this way. Take a look at this news uh, title that was in a, a newspaper, Professor Makes Students Stomp on Jesus. I mean, what's your reaction to that? I, I remember reading that headline thinking, well, that just ticks me off. And then you read the article, and here's what happens. Next slide. A professor in a class, communication class, had students write the name Jesus on a piece of paper, took the piece, put it on the ground, and then you were told to step, not stomp. He never used the word stomp, but you're to step on Jesus. Now, at that point, I'm just sitting there going, you see, that ticks me off. I always feel like people are stepping on Jesus today. I feel like people are stomping on my faith 24-7. It just ticks me off that somebody had undergraduate students at a secular university stomp on Jesus, step on Jesus. And it just made me mad. And I was not the only one who was mad. Right, next slide. This is DeAndre Poole. He is the Florida Atlantic University professor who had students do this. He had to take a leave of absence from the university because of death threats. Lawsuits were immediately brought against uh, Florida Atlantic University. And then, you know what's so funny? When the Chronicle of Higher Education decided to do a three-part series on what happened, that's when I realized I just violated every rule of cognitive complexity. Because here's what the assignment is. DeAndre Poole is saying this. Words matter, but words are merely symbols, right? If I had you draw the American flag on a piece of paper and then ask you to crumple it up and throw it away, would you do it? The answer might be no, because that's the American flag. DeAndre Poole would counter and say, that's not the American flag. That's a bad Pictionary drawing. And you would say, no, 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 but it represents to me the flag. That's the point DeAndre Poole wants to make. The purpose of using Jesus' name is you have to have a name that people won't step on. Because it shows people the power of a symbol. That's not Jesus. Those are just some letters put together. He said, now, if I had him write down my name and step on DeAndre Poole, people are going to be stomping with glee on DeAndre Poole. So I have to find a symbol that people won't step on. And and he's he's a Christian, has taught Sunday school for 22 years. By the way, somebody said to him, well, why don't you take uh, Muhammad? He goes, no, 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 you see, people will step on Muhammad, and if I was in the Middle East, maybe I would use Muhammad and not Jesus. Now, regardless if you think that's a good exercise, regardless if you think I would do that if I taught a class, 
the cognitive complexity aspect is, but did you see it through DeAndre Poole's eyes? Did you understand why he created this? Do you understand what the point was behind it? Now, you, um, perspective taking doesn't mean that you agree with something. It just means that I'm going to stop long enough, set aside my prejudices, my passions, my convictions, and I just want to see why you did what you did. Why you voted for this person. Why you um, won't go to this movie. Why you will go to this movie. I just want to stop long enough, not judge you, but see the world through your perspective. That's what we call perspective taking. Now, when we take a look at the Bible, we get a lot of examples. Oh, oh, let me show you uh, very quickly. Go back up. Um, Next slide. Uh, This is the Old Testament's handling of perspective taking. As you read through the Bible, you see that God is constantly asking people to do perspective taking. And he does perspective taking in the very end in a very unique way. So the Old Testament, Abraham and Isaac. So God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, the son that you have waited for for an incredibly long time, the son that I promised you, I now want you to take the son and sacrifice the son. What? Now, we could talk all day, theologically, whether God ever intended Abraham to actually do it. My inclination, no, he did not. But he wanted him to go through the exercise. Why? Because I want you to know what it's like when I sacrifice my son. Right? And by the way, when we read the story, can you imagine taking one of your children And literally sacrificing one of your children. We recoil at that. That's why God has it in the scriptures. Because you're recoiling from it, I did it. In the New Testament is what I think God says. Next, look at Hosea 1-2. God says to the prophet Hosea, uh, Hosea, I want you to call my people back to me. Uh, But uh, God says, I feel like I'm married to an adulterous woman. So Hosea, in order for you to be my spokesperson and get the emotion right and get the passion right, I'm going to have you marry a harlot. A woman who's going to cheat on you all the time so that when you proclaim that I want my children to come back to me, you'll know what it's like to have somebody cheat on you. This is what God says in Hosea 1-2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So what's he saying to Hosea? I want you to do perspective taking. I want you to understand what it's like to have an adulterous wife because I have an adulterous nation. Uh, Next, Uh, book of Ecclesiastes is fascinating. The book of Ecclesiastes says, let's imagine there's no God. Life under the sun means there's no divine truth. Nothing is above the sun, right? There's no God, there's no divinity, there's no miracles, there's no life after death. Now you read the book of Ecclesiastes and the writer is saying, so what's wealth? Is wealth really satisfying to you if there's no life after death and no ultimate purpose? No. Is education uh, going to satisfy you? No, not life under the sun. So the book of Ecclesiastes is God writing one whole book on perspective taking. I want you to enter into the world of a person who does not believe in God. And how does that feel to you as you look at beauty, as you look at meaning of life, education, and wealth? Okay, New Testament. This is continued. 
Hebrews 13.3, the writer is talking to you to pray for Christians who have been imprisoned for their faith. And this is what the writer says. Remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. That's perspective taking. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. That's perspective taking. Uh, Look at Jesus. This is an amazingly controversial verse. Luke 2.52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, wait a minute. Jesus is God. How in the world did Jesus grow in anything? Well, when Jesus came to earth as a human being, he was fully human and fully divine. The fully human part learned and learned what it was like to be a human being, not from some abstract thinking, but he knows what it's like to be an infant and crying. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by God. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by friends. He knows what it's like, right? All of these things, right? When Jesus is in Gethsemane saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me and take this cup from me? He knows what it's like to have God seemingly turn his back on Jesus. Well, that's really useful when we have a Savior that we later go to with our pains. Jesus knows them, not abstractly, but because he did divine perspective-taking. Next slide. So the definition of perspective-taking, which I think is a high value here at Vox. See, the great thing about Vox is, regardless of what your perspective is, we promise we're going to do perspective-taking with you. We promise that we're not going to shun you, we're not going to limit what you do at this church, but we're going to have these conversations. Now, with any conversation, we're going to disagree. Right? Somebody once wrote a question in, Mike tackled it, would, would you accept a rapist coming to Vox? Well, Mike said, not if he or she's currently practicing it. The answer is no, but of course we'd take a person who is coming out of that, has done his or her time. Of course we would embrace people like that. We want to do perspective taking with people and welcome them to a church that a lot of people just don't feel at home in church anymore. So that's why I think perspective taking cognitive complexity is really important. So, definition of perspective taking, the capacity to assume and maintain another's point of view. Now, that doesn't mean you condone the other point of view. Right now, I'm teaching a class on persuasion for Biola undergrads. They are required to do what Aristotle advocated. Aristotle said, for you to be a competent citizen, you had to be able to do the method of the dialectic. All the method of the dialectic means is, I can argue both sides of an issue. With equal passion, equal integrity, I can argue both sides of an issue. So I now force my students, who often are never asked to do that within the Christian family, right? I say, okay, three groups. Group number one, God does not exist. Give me the arguments. Why he does not exist. They're all like, "Uh, okay, I don't know what those are. How crazy is that you don't know what they are? But you, right, go research them. Another one, Jesus isn't the only way to get to God. That's crazy. If Jesus is the only way to get to God, then what about all the millions of people who have never heard of him? Right? We know that's true in the Old Testament. We know there's parts of the world that have never heard of Jesus, nor will they ever hear of Jesus, most likely in our lifetime. What do you do with those individuals who lived and died and never heard the name Jesus? They're going to be judged of rejecting a person they never were introduced to? Now my students are like... Okay, okay. Um, 
we feel the fetus is incredibly important. We feel that in the Old Testament, very clearly in Psalm 139, you get that the fetus is human. And so um, we believe strongly at Biola University that, that we're pro-life. But not everybody agrees with that. So give me the best arguments why the fetus is not human or why the fetus should not be compared to, to the mother. Right now, go. And they're all like, now, you know what happens very quickly? Here's what happens. I get calls from parents. Bingo. Hey, give me, give me props for doing this before I had tenure. Give me props. My wife said, my wife said to me, honey, you can't do this. We, you can't get fired. We can't sell the house. We're underwater. We can't sell the house. I have students read the Quran in my classes. Cover to cover. When they do that, they're part of the 1% of American Christians who have ever read another book of a faith tradition. And you wonder why we have credibility problems with other religions. Right? We don't know what other people think. If I have the truth, why should I think anything else? And I'm saying, okay, that's not a cognitively complex view of the world or other religions. Okay? I think perspective taking is throughout the entire Old Testament and New Testament. And we'll talk more about Jesus at the very end of this um, talk. All right, let's go. Uh, Cognitive complexity asks a very simple question. How complex is your view of President Trump? How complex is your view of Secretary Clinton? How how complex is your view of the Nashville Statement? How complex is your view of theistic evolutionists who believe that God used the process of evolution to create human beings, right? How complex is your view of people that you dismiss very quickly? That's cognitive complexity. Uh, Next slide. Uh, There are three different aspects of cognitive complexity, three different factors that we want to take a look at. Number one, it's called differentiation. It is simply measured by how many distinct interpretations an individual uses to perceive and describe other people. So with any situation or person, I ask you, but how many interpretations do you have of why your roommate did that? How many interpretations do you have of why your spouse did that? Right? So, um, this is a picture of the Detroit Tigers um, who didn't make the uh, World Series. Um, But we went one day to, uh, I grew up in East Detroit. We went with a family friend to go watch the Tigers. We were in right field in the sun, and and, uh, in front of us was an African American couple eating fried chicken. It smelled unbelievable. So, the three meal hot boys, I have two older brothers, we were like vultures, just. Looking at this chicken, the woman noticed, how could she not notice, and turns around and says to me, if your dad says it's okay, you can have some. It wasn't my dad, it was a family friend. I was like, yes! So I say to this family friend, hey, she said we could have some. I'll never forget his reaction. He put his hand on my knee, squeezed it, and said to her, no thank you. And then whispered in my ear, we don't take food from those kind. Okay? Now, what's your initial reaction to that statement? He's a racist. Okay, but here's the most important part about cognitive complexity. If you just have one interpretation and it happens to be right, you're still not cognitively complex. You don't. You have one interpretation. So I force my students, and if we had time, I'd force you, come up with more interpretations. So let me use this crowd. I'll use this, my crowd right here. Give me more interpretations of why he said that. No to the fried chicken. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, he was taught. 
Yeah, we don't take food from strangers. We just don't, we don't, I don't care who it is. We just don't do that. Give me another one. Opposite team. Now, you would think this is small. You would think this is small. One of my kids, all my kids played Little League Baseball. Talk about a labor of love. You go through a doubleheader, you love those kids. Right? Um, one of my kids was drafted by the Yankees. Right? I hate the Yankees. I hate that. It was so wonderful last night. Show me that God is good. Yeah. Houston, right? So I said to my child, I said to my child, listen, I just want you to know something. One, you're not to wear that uniform in the house. You will get dressed in the garage. Two, you will never hear me yell, go Yankees. You will hear me yell, go team, go stripes. No. And my wife was like, are you really that small? And I was like, so yeah, it could be that it was just the other team and we're not going to, right? Other, other interpretations. Other interpretations. Okay, maybe something happened in his past. Good, good. What else? Yeah, I don't like fried chicken. Messes with my whole system, right? Maybe my parents gave him money for the seventh inning stretch, and this couple obviously doesn't have much, let's say. And I, listen, I've got, I've got my own money. No, he could have worded it better, right? But no, we got money, and it's, and it's the seventh inning. I'm going to take them all, and we're going to go get hot dogs. Now, listen, even if we go back to the interpretation that he's racist, which I think he was, but, but, but it makes it more complex. Why? Because now I have to verify this statement. See, if I'm just thinking he's a racist locked and loaded, there's no reason to have a conversation with him. There's no reason to lar- uh, make my perspective bigger because I'm locked and loaded with my perspective. That's a very dangerous place to be. Welcome to American politics. There's no conversation happening between the left and the right. I spoke at uh, Capitol Hill on the Faith and Law lecture series on my book, I Beg to Differ, and the staffers, Republican and Democrat, said it's the worst it's ever been. Mere talking to a person is being seen as condoning. And that shuts down all communication. So the very first thing we ask ourselves when our spouse comes in late, our child is texting at the dinner table, right? How many interpretations do I have of this one person? If I'm just locked and loaded with one, I'm not cognitively complex. Number two, um, it focuses on the extent to which an individual interprets others in terms of internal motives, personality traits, and character. So I try to ask the question, what happened internally to this person? So 1968, Detroit, what happened? A race riot happened. The National Guard was deployed. Um, My dad, three times, called home from General Motors to my mom saying, pack up the family car, we're getting out of here. Uh, My dad took us around the outskirts of Detroit where tanks were set up in the streets of Detroit. Now, my family friend ran a business. It was burnt to the ground. He did not have adequate insurance. So he lost his business, never recovered from his business, and blamed African Americans. Now, What does that information do to you when you hear it? Right? It doesn't make what he said wrong, uh, right. It doesn't make that right to make that racist statement. But now I I get a little bit of the backstory and the pain that that is associated with blaming one particular group with a very uh, widespread riot. 
So I want to know internally what's happening. I want to know what brought you to this point. I want to know the backstory. The third one is very important. It's called organization. The degree to which individuals notice, underline that in your mind, and are able to make sense of contradictory interpretations, underline contradictory, which means this. When you look at a person um, and you, you, you say that person's all evil or that person's all bad, that's not cognitively complex. We force ourselves to say, even though you don't like this person, I want you to give me, do you notice contradictory information? Like you think this person's all evil, yet you learn that this person did this. Do you notice it and do you make sense of it? Does it add to your interpretation? So who's this? This is Adolf Eichmann. He's the mastermind of the death camps. Uh, Six million Jews dying during World War II. That's him, Nuremberg Trials. Uh, He has to sit behind a bulletproof glass uh, because his life was threatened constantly. So a man named Elie Wiesel, you probably read one of his books called Night. Uh, He um, went to Adolf Eichmann's trial expecting to see the devil. But what he didn't understand is that the Nuremberg trials were trials, that these Germans had defense lawyers defending Adolf Eichmann, and so brought in character witnesses. So Elie Wiesel sat there and listened to a wife who said he was a great husband, listened to soldiers who said he was an exemplary um, leader, and children who said he was a loving, doting father. Now, what do you do with that information? One, I can simply wipe it away. I can say I don't buy any of it. Therefore, he's evil. I can say about President Trump, I don't buy any of the positives because I'm locked on my negative. So I wipe away the positives as soon as they come up because I'm locked on one interpretation. I don't notice contradictory information. You're not cognitively complex. It shook Elie Wiesel. In a book called One Generation After, this is what Wiesel writes. Adolf Eichmann was an ordinary man. He slept well. He ate well. He was an exemplary father, a considerate husband. He was a man like any other. And it shook Elie Wiesel. Why? Because he walked in expecting him to be the devil and left saying he was wrong in what he did. But he was a man who was complex. There was a good side to Adolf Eichmann, even though he deserved to be found guilty of crimes of humanity at the Nuremberg trials. Here's the most disturbing picture of Adolf Eichmann I could find. Why? The person who created the death camps, in my mind, does not hold the bunny. No, go back to the bunny one, not that one. The bunny one. Adolf Eichmann does not have a pet bunny. In my world, Adolf Eichmann does not. He's strangling a bunny, right? No, this is Adolf Eichmann who had a pet and loved his wife and loved his kids. Does that mean I back off condemning Adolf Eichmann? No, but I realize Adolf Eichmann was a complex man, right? And that's cognitive complexity. And that's, I think, what we need to return to as a church as we disagree with people, but have complex views of individuals. Next. Uh, This is um, 
Frederick Douglass. Douglass said, when you do perspective taking, don't keep it just on the intellectual level. We call that the intellectual's error. Just because you read a book about a person doesn't mean you necessarily know the person. It's better to interact with that person and even try to experience what that person experienced. Um, So this is what he said. Douglass argued that one could not experience the ills of slavery while sitting in a reading chair. Ironic, because Frederick Douglass formed his own newspaper, founded his own newspaper. Um, An individual must place himself or herself in the deep pine woods and analyze the sounds that shall pass through the chambers of the soul. He said, you you want to know about the ills of slavery? Go out into the woods and listen to these slaves sing as they go to receive their allowance from their master, right, the, the slave owner, and you will hear the pains of that voice, but you've got to be in the deep pine woods. So uh, one of my colleagues at Biola just took students to Skid Row for the very first time, and they spent the night in Skid Row. We can talk about poverty all we want, but until you smell it, until that taste is on your tongue, until you're walking around seeing things and feeling things, boy, that, that's even more of a complex perspective-taking that we could talk about. Next. Uh, perspective-taking reveals our heart. Uh, Here are three questions I ask myself after I do perspective-taking. One, does perspective-taking produce empathy? Empathy is my ability to see into your world. Do do you matter enough to me that I'm going to try to empathize with you? I'm going to set aside my beliefs and I'm going to try to see the world through your eyes. That's empathy. But does it produce sympathy? See, empathy and sympathy are two different things. Empathy is my ability to see the world through your eyes. Sympathy is once I do, I'm sympathetic towards you. Right? I learn you come from a broken family or you have a chronic disease. I can empathize with that but not sympathize with that. So we want to, in a perfect world, not only empathize but sympathize with individuals. Third, does perspective taking change the relational level of my communication? So I might not change my content, but the relational is the amount of compassion between two individuals, the amount of empathy, the amount of respect between two individuals. I would hope perspective taking would change the relational level of my um, arguing with you or disagreeing with you, that I now do with much more gentleness and sympathy having walked in your shoes. I want to end with two quotes, one from an, uh, a very famous book you've probably read, and then one from the scriptures. Here is a quote from All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, Eric Remarque. In it, World War I, you have trench warfare, a French soldier is sitting in his trench, and a German soldier has gotten discombobulated, turned around, and mistakenly jumps into a French trench when he thought it was a German trench. The French soldier immediately reacts and stabs him in the stomach, but now has to watch him die. And as he dies, he now looks through his wallet and sees photographs of his wife and kids. And this is a great quote from All Quiet on the Western Front. Comrade, I did not want to kill you. If you jumped in here again, I would not do it if you would be sensible too. But you were only an idea to me before, an abstraction that lived in my mind and called forth its appropriate response. It was that abstraction I stabbed. But now, for the first time, I see you are a man like me. I thought of your hand grenades, of your bayonet, of your rifle. Now I see your wife and your face and our fellowship. Forgive me, comrade. We always see it too late. 
So men and women, here's what we're stuck with in America today. We're fighting abstractions. Nobody knows anybody opposite on the aisle today in politics. And even in box, we can argue against abstractions. Well, you're for President Trump. I'm against President Trump. Right? But, but we, at Fox, we're small enough, this is the benefits of our size, is that we can get past the abstractions, that we can actually get to know each other and live each other's shoes, and the complex reasons I'm for or against a person kneeling during the national anthem. That's a complex issue. Let me end with a verse that just greatly encourages me to do perspective taking. Take a look at what the writer of Hebrews says. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Do you know in the Greek, the word sympathy means this, knowledge by way of common experience. I love that. So why does Jesus know what it's like to go through a dark night of the soul? Because he went through his dark night of the soul in Gethsemane. Face down in the ground, weeping that God would find an alternative to the cross. Does Jesus know what it's like to be betrayed by a friend? Yes, he was betrayed by a friend. Does Jesus know what it's like to be tired and fatigued? Absolutely. Does he know what it's like to be beaten? Absolutely. Does he know what it's like to to have God seemingly turn his back on you? Yes, at the cross he shouts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So men and women, Vox is a safe place, not that we have groupthink, but a safe place that we have really complex, really hard conversations where we stop long enough to set aside our passions, our convictions, and see the world through your eyes. And the byproduct of that is going to be what the Apostle Paul says. Now we speak the truth, but we do it with love. Let me pray for us. Father, it's a complex world. There are a lot of issues that are confusing and good people on both sides. I pray Vox would be a place that Alan Jacobs talked about. Where can we go to have conversations rooted in truth and rooted in love. And Father, thank you for this community that's willing to ask really hard questions. And I I so appreciate the leadership of this church that they would stand up in front of people and try to answer them. Questions that would never see the light of day at other churches. Find their way into box and people, we try to answer them. Lord, we're in our infancy. You know that. We're a very, very young church trying to be different and trying to work this out. Father, I do pray for people in the audience who feel slighted, who feel marginalized. Um, I pray for patience as we try to work it out as a leadership team and as a teaching team. Father, thank you that you took perspective taking with us. And I pray that we would take time to learn about the path other people have been on. So we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, perspective taking is seen in communion. It's seen in the Lord's table. Jesus could have just said, hey, I just want you to regularly think about what I did for you. I want you to think about my blood that was shed for you and my body that was broken. I want you to think about it. He said, no, I want you to do something. I want you to actually hold that piece of bread, that wafer in your hand. And I want you to taste it. Uh, My blood, I want you to have wine. I want you to have... Grape juice, I want that to resonate on your tongue as you think about what I did and what it cost me to bring you into the family. And that's what we are here at Vox. We're a family full of tension, (laughs) 
full of disagreements. We probably have a weird uncle or two that we don't talk about much, but part of the family. So stand with me. Father, we come before you. We are so thankful of your mercy, your grace, that when the human race fell, you didn't abandon us. You sent Christ, who grew in stature, who understands what it's like to be human because he was human. And that grace uh, we take upon ourselves. And most importantly, we give that grace to others. The forgiveness we received, we give to others. I pray for today that it would be a day that we would, before we speak, before we offer our opinion, would stop. And just for five good minutes, take the other person's perspective. So we do pray these things in your son's name. Amen. You are dismissed. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.